Okay, we're live. Woo! Hello and welcome. Hopefully the audio is fine. I was too cold to move into the room where, where my microphone is, so I'm using AirPods. Decent. All about flexibility. Yeah, that's what it's all about, Andy. We just had a look at the question post and there are so many questions. So I'm not even going to ask you how you are because nah. there isn't any time for niceties today. Let's, <laughs> let's get on with the questions. Right in. Good, right. From Lauren. Good morning. What are your thoughts on smoothies and getting your fruit and veg portions in that way? You go first. Um, smoothies... I think the the issue that you have with things like smoothies is, is, the, is the satiety levels. It takes away the fact that your stomach's going to be full because you've pretty much shredded the shredded up pretty much everything that you're putting into your body. Um, yes, it's handy to get them in, um, and it's easier, slightly easier than sticking them through potentially through meals. But you have to remember the hunger satisfaction alongside that if you smash all your vegetables in in a smoothie or fruit in in a smoothie you're not going to be you're probably going to find that you're hungrier because your meals aren't as bulky yeah agreed so there's a couple of like other problems with this if it's a smoothie as opposed to you've just um like if you've juiced it and you've basically taken away basically most of the goodness so all of the fiber really and you're just left with the juice which is essentially like sugary water which yeah tastes great but you're probably missing some a lot of the goodness of eating a lot of fruit and vegetables so there's that factor if you're just blending up the fruit and veg then and you're keeping in all the pulp then you still get that benefit or at least some of that benefit um as Andy mentioned like chewing is quite a big part of satiety as well so that's an important factor in how full you're going to be from eating fruit and veg the other thing is if you think about even if you lay this out like I don't know if you're making your own smoothies or not but there's like a huge amount of fruit and veg that goes into like one very small smoothie just even just like logically like eating that is going to make you so much fuller for so longer take you a bit longer to get through it as well like some of these smoothies have on the back like I don't know if this is true but some of them are like there are eight apples nine oranges and three bananas in this innocent smoothies yeah and you just think well one like check the calories as well because some of these are really high in calories um yeah and two like just imagine eating even half of that amount and how much more full you'd be I enjoy yeah. eating fruit, but yeah, I think ideally, no, get your fruit in from eating it, fruit and veg in from eating it. But if you're the kind of person that's not either going to have a smoothie or something similar or not have anything, then sure. But it's not yeah. optimal, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, look, Helena, impact of stress or heightened cortisol levels on fat loss, metabolism and strength. And then adding into that one, and also what is the impact on sleep? Such or sorry, lack of, lack of sleep on the above. Yeah, such a good question, um, which we could do like numerous podcasts on this question itself. But just to kind of give Huge. a bit of an overview, I think a lot of people 
so stress I want to do a podcast on stress full stop because it's so fascinating and actually I suggest everyone go and watch a YouTube video I think it's like 20 minutes long and and I hate suggesting YouTube videos because it sounds so quirky like oh go and watch this YouTube video but anyway it's a very good researcher her name is I think Elena Crum or Crumb I can't remember but I'll post it in the group for you guys anyway and it's just a different look at how you perceive stress it's such fascinating research. It basically shows that depending on how you perceive stress, whether stress is a good thing or a bad thing, completely changes the way you respond to stressful situations. And if you think yeah. about it, most of us do think of stress as a negative. We're always like, oh, I'm stressed. Like that's normally saying I feel overworked. I don't feel my best. Whereas when you really think about it, actually, you will perform at your absolute best when you are stressed as well. So like Olympic final couldn't be a more stressful situation and most people up their game to perform at that level the problem with stress in my opinion is like low level chronic stress so the fact that you're always feeling like you should be doing something or always feeling a little bit under pressure or more sort of anxious than stressed I think um and that's the problem and the, the same is true in terms of the physiology side of this so if you have chronically high cortisol levels that isn't a good thing but if you just have like I mean training will increase cortisol levels and and short increases in cortisol which is a stress hormone is a good thing like it's not a negative thing and a lot of the time we take these things out of context same with things like insulin like chronically high levels of insulin not a very good thing (laughs) hallmark of type 2 diabetes but short spikes in insulin completely like not just normal, but you need it to live. Like look at type one diabetics, they have to create those spikes themselves. Like, it's yeah. essential. So hormones aren't good or bad and they normally don't have one role in the body, but they can become dysregulated, which is what can happen in sort of these chronic um, conditions. The impact it will have on fat loss, I think this is a really important point to make. and I'm sure we've made it numerous times in podcasts before. And this is the same, like this is true for sleep. This is true for medications. This is true for hormone imbalances. The way that anything can impact your fat loss results is via impacting energy balance. So whether that's the fact that high cortisol levels mean that you're stress eating and you're eating more or meaning that you're moving less, whether it's the fact that sleep means or like lack of sleep means that you're not exercising as hard and not burning as many calories and your willpower is reduced a little bit because you're tired all the time and it's harder to make good decisions when you're chronically fatigued like are your decisions in terms of your health outcomes poorer at the moment because you haven't been sleeping that 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 is how these things affect fat loss so they're not it's not just like even if I was in a calorie deficit, I wouldn't lose weight because I've not been sleeping. That isn't how these things work. They have an effect on your behavior and it can certainly make it harder. And they certainly have a very real effect. Like even if you look at the physiology of sleeping less, and we know that that can reduce your insulin sensitivity and can that impact your hunger and thus impact the amount that you eat during that day. Like that's how these things work. So it's not just like a direct effect that you have nothing you, that you could control over it. Yeah, perfect. Great, great answer. Um, from Ellie, aggressive diets, adherence and hacks. 
Let's remove the word hacks straight away. There is no such thing as a hack. What's wrong with the it's, word hack? I just don't. I just don't like it. It's this whole oh, what did, what did I see recently? Somebody, somebody claiming to be a brain hack expert. It's like shut up, you moron. Like get a grip of yourself. Honestly, it just nah, right, not okay. for me. Um, little tips maybe, but hack no. Um, adherence. That, I think that's the biggest. The biggest issue with aggressive dieting is adherence. Is being able to stick to an aggressive diet, which is generally pretty low um, or extremely low. Um, for a, a set amount of time um, I myself will aggressively diet um, because I know I can stick to it but I do it short term so it's like two months really low batter it through and then two months time we see a change in the two months but it's all down to how the person perceives the lowest level and how they can stick at that as well um, so you know generally for general Joe it's like fat loss is about slow and steady because it's easier to it's easier to keep your head in check. Whereas aggressive diet and if you're really low on calories, that's when the the mental willpower and stuff comes in that you have to. I hate the word because it's a shit word, but you have to grind through on an aggressive diet. You have to just realize that we're doing this for short term. It's short term, high va or high bang bang for your buck but it needs to be done and that's the biggest issue with aggressive diets is totally about people being able to stick to the plan yeah there are so many pros and cons to this and I think a lot of people yeah. imagine that an aggressive diet like because it's a shorter period of time and they're going to get results quicker they imagine that that is a better option for them and they're like I could stick to this but it's a lot harder than people think not necessarily during the diet but coming out of that and then because you really have to relearn almost twice. Like if you have someone who is very overweight, you aggressively diet them. They have to one, like learn to stick to that diet for a set period of time, whether that's only six weeks or something. It, it's still a period yeah. of time they need to adjust to. And then at the end of that, they need to relearn something else, which is how to eat to maintain those results. And a yeah. lot of the time you can almost just like, yeah, the process of the fat loss itself will be slightly slower. But you're almost... Um, fast tracking that by just putting them straight onto something that is actually maintainable and is actually realistic and then when exactly. you bring your calories up to maintenance there's not really much of a change there it's just you're adding on a couple of calories it could be some swaps in your diet it's not this huge overhaul from going from eating 800 calories a day to now eating closer to 2000 that's a completely different change in your diet You've gone yeah. from essentially a lot of these extreme diets, like I'm talking about things like the Newcastle diet, where people consume, I think the shakes are 600 calories and then like two to 300 calories of um, fibrous veg on top of that. You're essentially teaching yourself not to eat. Like yeah. people, you're not really eating during that time. And I think that's one thing that almost makes it easier is there is no moderation there. It's just simply you are drinking these shakes. So you won't be and like you're having a bit of a salad with it just to keep your fiber up. But it's almost like you're not eating. And in many ways, it's easy to stick to extremes. Like I get why they're like why you would want to do it because yep. it, because it is a little bit easy. Like yeah. I know that people are like, oh, you know, it's hard and you sort of grind through it. But actually that level of structure and routine is fairly easy. Like I'm sure anyone listening to this who's on Commit to Six You've probably done fad diets in the past 
and they probably quote unquote got you results and when I say fad diets I mean like over restrictive diets and yeah. and an extreme diet is is an over restrictive diet or, or a very restrictive diet if you want to call it over or not and they will get you results but it's if you can maintain those results like that's what's important to the end of any diet no matter how you get there and honestly for 99.9 percent of my clients it is always better to do the more maintainable sustainable results um yeah. or approach to dieting mainly just for the maintenance aspect even if the result at the end of that period would be the same so you've got to remember like long term these diets have not worked for you in the past if you are now back to where you need to lose body fat again it's about the maintenance phase and you you kind of have to set yourself up for two dieting phases if you want to do something very restrictive so if I had someone who had a hell of a lot of body fat to lose and they were like I really want to get cracking on I want to do the Newcastle diet okay great I can support you through that but bear in mind there'll be two dieting phases here there will be the the strict period of time where you're on very low calories which actually you might think is going to be the hard part but it's not and then there'll be the period of time where you have to learn to maintain that and that's the hard part because balance is way harder it is it is like and I know that people think that like overly restricted diets are hard but they're actually not very hard it's maintaining that that's really hard and I know that um we got a question about this and I haven't actually listened to his podcast yet but I know the research he's talking about um Martin McDonald just did a very restrictive diet and he was talking about it on his podcast and he was saying that like some of the pros to a very restrictive diet is that your appetite does reduce and you kind of stop thinking about food as much and there isn't like in in some ways it's an, an easier approach which is true, but easier doesn't necessarily mean right. And often the hardest thing to do is usually the right thing to do, unfortunately. And even if you do get body fat results on this very restrictive diet, you still need to learn how to maintain yeah. those. And you could have just done that at the start and lived a more like a more balanced lifestyle. And if you have any um, desire, which you should, to live a balanced life and not have to almost like put a lot of your life I wouldn't say on hold but like there's a lot of sacrifice Sacrifice. as opposed to compromise involved in that even if it is for a six-week period that's why I never say never to these things because in in extreme circumstances like if you are a type 2 diabetic looking to go on the Newcastle diet which is specifically for reversing type 2 diabetes that might be a position where your health has become such a priority that yes maybe your social life and your family life and potentially your work life does need to take a bit of a backseat because this is what's important at the moment for a short period of time but out with those situations like I just don't I just don't think it's a good approach no totally agree totally agree Uh, okay next one say uh, from Ellie again where did the anti-diet where did anti-diet come from and why has it snowballed theories beliefs and related research etc oh this is a biggie this is massive uh do you know what i'll be totally honest i didn't know like the history of anti-diet and how it i think i need to go away and do a bit of reading on this before we fully discuss it i did do a podcast with chloe recently on body fat and health which i think it, it like relates to this quite closely but actually, in terms of the history of where like health at any size movement and anti-diet cult- or culture, anti-diet movement came from, 
in terms of like its specific history i would like to look into so i will come back to you on that but basically it is a pushback to diet culture and there are a lot of aspects of anti-diet that i'm absolutely for and agree with and believe in but then it goes too far yes well obviously we had you had your post this week about with a cosmopolitan um cover you know the 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 pictures that they put on that and you're you're totally right you know so many people the the sad thing is is that we are so polarized in general nowadays that you cannot sit and have a proper conversation so you're right if you decide that you you popped up your obviously your post on the cos the cosmo page and people started jumping down your throat about certain things and I think the reason being is is that you're either in one camp or the other. Whereas, for instance, we, me and you, we'll sit in the middle and we'll look at both sides and say, right, you've got, a, you've got a, your argument is this. However, science shows you this. Whereas a lot of the people that decide to, but certainly with the way that I look at it, like anti-diet stuff, is that it's very much, there's nothing wrong with how you look. And that's fair enough. I understand that. Perfect. But the health implications that come with that extreme, the, the extreme physique of being like, for instance, being obese. Perfect. You know, we've, we've mentioned previously that, you know, diabetes doesn't come on overnight. It can take years to occur. So just because you're healthy now at an obese weight doesn't mean in five years time that you're going to be healthy. And I think that's the biggest issue is that people don't, people will always look at the agenda that they set themselves. You know, they'll look at what, you know, fits their, fits their beliefs. Unfortunately, the science will probably disprove that, but they will then fight back and, oh, but the science is wrong. Well, how is it? Yeah, it's only wrong when it doesn't agree with your bias. Exactly. But it's interesting because the same research they're quoting to say, like, um basically to push back and say like look bmi isn't a perfect marker of health which i think we all agree on it's not but that you still can't dispute the fact that storing too much body fat does have health complications and 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 it's almost like they are trying to huh (laughs) that is fact (laughs) yeah but i mean you would think that that is kind of like a known acceptable thing and but it's not and as soon as you mention that now you're classed as like fat phobic. And the the truth is I can give a hoot what you look like or what your preference is, or if you prefer looking larger or smaller, or it doesn't bother me. In fact, I, I wouldn't care if you wanted to look anorexic, except that it has an impact on your health. And ex- the same is true for each extreme. Like, yeah. I really couldn't care what you look like. It, as long as you feel happy, then great. Like if if you yeah. love your body, then great. Look however you want, but we still can't ignore the fact that it's going to impact your health. And I actually think it's quite worrying seeing doctors on like a health at any size, but like pushing this anti diet rhetoric, where basically saying your body fat, like body fat, isn't just a inconsequential store of energy. Unfortunately, like if it was, then great. Do whatever the hell you want. But when you start storing too much of it, it does have negative health complications. And I don't think we can ignore that. And I think to be like championing obese bodies, like isn't, it's not a good thing. 
Yeah, because imagine, but imagine, imagine the imagine the uproar if you decided to start championing an anorexic body. Yeah, well, I know this is what why I use they, those two extremes because I'm they like go fucking mental. Yeah, so and I think the pushback of that is that we have been championing like two thin bodies in modelling for years. Yeah. I agree with that, which is where I'm saying I agree with a lot of the anti diet movement, but. Just because we've been doing one thing wrong at one end of the extreme, why should we now do the exact same thing wrong at the other end of the extreme? Like, what about this massive grey area where you can be a healthy body weight, have a healthy amount of fat, and, like, that's what we should be championing. We should be putting pretty normal images on the front of covers. People who have a normal range BMI of different shapes and sizes and ethnicities and sporting interests and backgrounds etc etc but that's what we should be championing and you know what's funny i'm pretty sure the next cover oh no way maybe this is women's health i thought it was cosmo maybe it's not but it's like um god what's her name now i can't remember who's the girl michelle anyway basically quite a skinny girl on on the cover again i'm just like oh great so one week we're at here and now we're just back to normal we're back to normal and that's you know that's the hypocrisy of the media uh, you know across the board it's just it's just it's it life is isn't funny it? though because it's like cosmo's now like oh anti-diet blah 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 i'm like you literally created this you created awful the skinny, diet you created this, like, the skinny like, trend you, you are diet culture and now you're yeah, like you, but diet culture <laughs> Oh, it's amazing. I mean, part of me is like, it's just so ironic that that is happening. But then part of me is like, well, actually, it's changing. And yeah, you can't, it's changing. like, you see so many people kick back and say stuff like that. And I'm like, well, what do you want? Like, yeah, they were wrong in the past. But if they're changing now. <laughs> I think the issue is, is they were wrong on one side, on one polar. And they've just went to wrong on the other polar now. So, you know, and I think that's the issue is, is that because of the way that the way that society is nowadays, you to sell stuff, you have to be at one end or the other. There's nobody. I think there's a big area in the middle where could be a really good place for people to be and give good advice and stuff. But it's not the place to be because you're not going to sell anything because you're not controversial enough. Yeah, and I think that's what's hard for us, and it's also hard from like a professional standpoint because I know that anti-diet people don't like me, but I also now know that like, like because I'm not diet culture-esque like and I point out a lot of problems we have in dieting culture that they probably don't like me either so you're like sitting in the middle kind of disliked by either because neither side you've not chosen a side and that's and that's the issue but you shouldn't choose a side that's the whole thing you should be sitting in the middle going right I can see the benefits there I can see the benefits there but it's that's the way it goes and that's you're you're the problem is is that you, you, you can sit in the middle like as we do but you're gonna yeah it's hard because as soon as you try and have a like a good debate with someone who is anti-diet they just completely move the goalpost so one they'll immediately turn around and claim that you're fat phobic and all of your ideals that like this is where all of this has come from you couldn't possibly understand etc etc like anyway um and then secondly they just move the goalpost so they're like yeah just a completely different argument of like Oh, well, yeah, maybe, maybe, I mean, not saying it does, but maybe having more body fat does have health implications, but also driving is a risk of dying. You're not saying we shouldn't drive. 
Yeah, that's like, like it's like comparing okay. it's like comparing apples and dogs. It's yeah, called, there's I like feel literally... like this is a slightly different argument, but <laughs> Fire like, on. okay, right. Should we move on from that one? Yeah, next Do you know one. what? I would love to get. I'm gonna ask Shona about this when she's next on the podcast because of the coaches, Shona is the most woke for sure. Definitely woke AF. Yeah, so I'm next interested question. to her opinion. Yeah. Um, next one, Fiona. What's wrong with kettlebells? Oh, right. Okay. I feel like I, I need to. Expression. What's right with kettlebells? <laughs> I need to explain this. So, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with kettlebells. If you love kettlebells, like great, keep using them. And if you've got them at home, fantastic. My um, like problem issue. Is- issue. My issue with them is. Um, Shona's watching so she's laughing Um, so yeah my issue with them is if you're going to spend some money on something at home please get dumbbells because they're just more versatile like you can do more with them the only thing you can't really do which I guess you can actually with a dumbbell is a kettlebell swing I I put a video up up yesterday of doing a dumbbell swing and you can do a dumbbell swing simple as there you go but, and also my problem with kettlebell swings is they are usually done horrendously, which means that if I'm not coaching you in real life, I probably wouldn't be putting a lot of them in the programming. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's my issue with kettlebells, really. It, it Just always because we were having a chat in the coaching group and Shona was talking about kettlebells. And I just like I don't understand why everyone seems to have a kettlebell at home, but not dumbbells. Like why? It's I think it's. Again, this isn't aiming at anybody, and especially because Shona's not here, this might sound like it's aimed at her. I think it's just a lot of it's down to CrossFit. CrossFit is, you know, and that circuit style training has brought in kettlebells. Um, unfortunately, the majority of people I see using kettlebells absolutely butcher kettlebells. It is possibly the most horrific watch in the world. I'll generally see somebody doing something on social media with kettlebells. I'll spin past it because I know I'm going to I'm going to probably throw up in my mouth. Um, you know, the well, I also st- don't get really where they came from. Like it's such a, it's done very well considering it's just a weight on a like kettle thing. It was it's so I think this whole thing there's there's a whole host of different places that kettlebells have apparently come from. From everybody claims that they're Russian. But actually, there seems to be more to show that they were actually Scottish originally. And it was like things like it was to throw stuff. So it was like throwing the hammer, throwing kettlebells. It was to do with chucking stuff. That was your your macho masculine thing. How far you could chuck a weight was how much of a man you were. And that's kind of the sort of thing behind it. And I think, you know, if you look at the way that kettlebell competitions are set up, it's about how much you can shift. Can you clean a 32 kilo kettlebell? You know, it's it's about how much weight you can chuck up there. But as you said, you know, as a as a coach, I, sorry, I just <laughs> I forgot there were actual kettlebell competitions. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There's so much. I have been. <laughs> I put a question box up on Instagram today and or yesterday. Three questions saying why do you hate kettlebells? I feel like it's almost like it's quite. There's quite a cult behind it. It, it, it is. Well, there is. But I, I don't know if you remember back in like the the noughties, there were you had the guy, um, you had a lot of guys that were doing a lot of sort of like 
closet kettlebell stuff and it was like really it's like strongman strongman has that real strongman like you know camaraderie similar to crossfit has that real camaraderie slash cult whatever you want to call it but that kettlebells were exactly the same you know you had guys get you had you know you had people going out and doing going out to america to do like seminars and workshops and stuff you know one of the guys that i i did a, a course with a guy called steve cotter who is probably one of the the most well-known guys in america with kettlebells the guy's a, a physical freak like i shit you not this boy was doing single leg pistol squat jumps onto like a five foot plinth it was disgusting to what i be the kettlebells oh unbelievable but, I've, I've actually done a full two-day kettlebell course fully qualified yeah. kettlebell instructor here yeah that's I, both i think to be fair i think level three pt generally gets that nowadays anyway but you know for me as a coach a dumbbell is very difficult to get wrong. Yes, you can get it wrong, but a kettlebell is a whole different ke- kettle of fish. Excuse the pun. Um, yes, but it's um, you know, it's a massively different thing, and there's so much more that can go wrong with it. So you know, even from the very basic kettlebell swing, if I have to, as you as you exactly said, if I'm working with somebody online, I'm not going to be able to teach that, so I'm not going to program it. So what's the what's what's the point in putting it in as far as, yeah. far as I, I think just from like a purely like selfish programming perspective because like the gyms are shut it's yep. so much easier for us to program good workouts with dumbbells yeah and that's it but okay anyway. moving on moving on righty so like right uh, from kate caffeine how does caffeine affect weight loss is it better to have none at all a little bit when you need it I personally have zero caffeine except the odd can of Diet Coke, but I used to drink a lot of caffeine, so I'm just interested if it has a negative effect at all. So it actually has a positive effect on fat loss. Um, Caffeine is often, that's usually the active ingredient in these fat burner pills, um, which I wouldn't particularly recommend relying on, but there is, I mean, you can't dispute the fact that caffeine will potentially aid fat loss in terms of it increasing your energy expenditure, slightly increasing thermogenesis. So I don't know if you notice sometimes after you drink caffeine, you get quite hot and a little bit sweaty, like you are producing more heat, requires energy to produce heat, thus you might burn slightly more calories. Now, what I'm talking about here is like minimal calories. So it's not like you're gonna take these fat burner pills and it have any like noticeable effect on fat loss, but it may add a little bit like on top it's the it's the icing on the cake if you will it, it, it's actually kind of great if you're if you're already not having a lot of caffeine it'll probably have a bigger impact on you but again this is something i would like add in right at the end of the diet if you really really needed it and i think a better way to use it it also might have a slightly appetite suppressant effect as well so if you did have like coffee in the morning or a black coffee it might suppress your appetite slightly might slightly increase your heat production so burn a couple of extra calories there and it might make you more energetic train harder or just generally move more that's how it's going to impact fat loss it's it i'm willing to bet it's going to contribute like if you maybe took if you were increasing your caffeine like 50 calories a day considering all of those yeah. things you can add and it in if you want there's nothing the issue, the issue with that is, is that 50 calories that you're going to burn 
how much have you intaken with whatever it is that you're taking your caffeine well, I mean, in? Yeah, if, if you've had a black coffee or if you've had like grenade fat burners or something, then yep. basically no calories. But yeah, that is a consideration as well. If you're like, oh, I'm going to have this massive latte, uh, which is 300 calories, but I'll burn an extra 20 calories from the caffeine <laughs> in it. I think the for the on the other side of that question is the negative effect of it is a lot of people have the the negative effect of um, if you take it too late your sleep can be affected but that's again you know we've discussed this previously I generally have a very high tolerance for caffeine I can drink caffeine probably until eleven o'clock at night and then fall straight asleep but that's just because I can do it that way um, a lot of people do like for instance Shona not Shona coach Shona but Shona who I work alongside she's um, taking caffeine out after I think three o'clock and her sleeping pattern she's been her recovery levels are brilliant um, and it's just because if she'd been taking caffeine too late she wasn't sleeping whereas me it doesn't really have that effect on me I can have caffeine at eight o'clock at night and I'll fall asleep at half eight whilst watching telly so it's um that's the only thing you would probably be aware of for negative and also don't go mental and smash huge amounts of it because you you can probably have a bit of an interesting crash off the back of it. Yeah, I agree. I think the only real consideration is sleep and obviously too much of a good thing is no longer a good thing. So don't go crazy on it. And if you are going to sort of implement it into your nutrition, then start slowly and just add in and see how you feel. Um, and I, I completely agree with what Andy said. It's so individual. So setting rules for like everyone on commit six and never drink caffeine after lunchtime or something isn't really applicable because, you know, look at most Italians who have an espresso after their dinner and then go to and bed. And they have like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it, it's completely individual. And I often talk about this study when we talk about this, but I find it quite fascinating. But they, there was a study that showed that people who got the best sleep were the people who drank caffeine late at night so if you were just looking at observational research there you'd be like oh caffeine helps you sleep no it's because nobody who had a strong effect of caffeine as in like it couldn't help them sleep none of them would ever drink caffeine late at night so they're obviously taken out of that so anyone that does drink caffeine late at night probably sleeps pretty well anyway and obviously isn't affected by the caffeine and thus, that's why you see that pattern. But yeah. Okay, Perfect. next question. Next one. Set point RE weight. Sorry, is that, is that it? Yep. So what, your weight having a set point that it's going to fight back to. I think we've done quite a few podcasts on this previously, but... Yeah, have a listen back because this has come up quite a few times and we've gone into like quite a, a bit of detail on this. But just briefly... Set point theory, for those who don't know, is basically that your body will try and like maintain a set weight. And this is true to an extent. So your body does try and defend against both weight gain and weight loss. Unfortunately, it's much better at defending against weight loss than it is against weight gain. Um, That's why as you diet, things like hunger goes up, your natural movement goes down, like your body's trying to preserve as much energy as possible. And also when you eat more, similar happens. It's just kind of to a lesser extent. So your satiety goes down. Your body's like, oh, we've got loads of energy here. We don't need much more food. Um, 
your but and then that can become dysregulated so we know what happens with leptin levels is when leptin becomes too high and chronically there your brain isn't reading that anymore it doesn't sort of turn down satiety similar to the response to insulin when it's when it's there all the time it doesn't have the same effect on the body and your brain doesn't really respond in the same way um but so there is some evidence that yes your body does defend its weight what's going to be more i guess um what's the right word i don't even know what word i'm looking for anyway what's going to be more impactful maybe is your behaviors so a lot yep. of people think oh my body just trying to defend this weight yeah, it's probably because previously you were moving a lot more. Like your body's going to defend a weight which balances your current lifestyle. So if you start moving a hell of a lot more and you don't eat more, you will still lose weight. Like it's not that it's always going to have the same set point and your set point is really defined by your lifestyle at the time, how active you are, how much you eat, how much you move. Like it will vary throughout your life. And there's, I mean, if there was a really strong set point that your body would not budge from, no one would ever starve and no one would ever become overweight. Like there is adaptations to an extent that your body tries to maintain a certain weight, which can make it harder to push past that on either way, like putting on weight and losing weight. But it's certainly not foolproof in that it would stop you losing weight in a negative energy balance or stop you gaining weight in a surplus. Perfect. All good. Uh, okay, next question. Is it normal for your body to feel differently when taking in a lot more protein and less carbs than what it's used to? I feel full and have energy, but somehow feel empty and slightly sick. Do you want to go on that one? Yeah, not too sure about the slightly sick bit. That's maybe, I, I don't know. It's maybe with certainly with more protein in your diet what normally happens is you will feel fuller so it might feel that you're you're a bit more packed up um but i think um with with less carbs it's i don't know i think a lot of that is sort of things like glycogen stores as well you know you might feel that you're you've got more energy with that one but it also might just be sort of a bit of a head thing as well it's just try to get your mentally get around the fact that you are changing your diet up yeah i i would agree i think if you continue to feel sick then obviously let us know and we can look into things yeah. one thing i would say is we don't want you going extremely low carb mm. so like i mean moderate carb would be great like we still want you to have lots of fruit yeah. and veg in there, some whole grains in there. So make sure you're getting enough carbs. Um, but it's fine to cut some of your calories by cutting carbs, absolutely. If you have had a big change to your diet, and I think this is especially true in going through check-ins, like I think this is a good thing to touch on. If, if especially after Christmas, like you've been eating highly palatable foods, probably a lot more calories, quite stodgy stuff, probably quite high carbs, and then you've suddenly made quite a big change in your diet, you will feel different. And it might feel a bit odd. And sometimes it does take a little bit of time for your body to get used to that. So that might be part of it. The other part of that I wanted to touch on is that the first week or so coming back to like eating a quote unquote cleaner or like less sort of junk, enjoyable Christmas food 
however you want to label it or not label it um is quite hard like getting back into that routine is quite hard and often your cravings are much higher because you're used to eating those highly palatable foods and it doesn't feel like you're as full or it's just, you know you're finding it much harder to stick to your diet the first couple of weeks after the christmas break that is completely normal but the good news is it will get easier like i honestly think after just even i mean for me i get back into routine pretty quickly but i wouldn't i say it wouldn't take more than a week of just getting back on track and do you know what this week you might have to really dig in a little bit and push through it and you might be craving a little bit more than you usually would but after a week of getting like getting yourself back on track I think you'll be absolutely fine so if you are struggling this week getting back into a routine then just push through because it'll be yeah. easier next week excellent okay doc from sam uh, front squats versus back squats i'm not a huge fan of lower body training so often i mix it up i also find front squats more comfortable if my knee's playing up is it detrimental to jump between the two for information i would only be doing i would only be doing either a front or back per leg day not both in one session just wondered if it mattered a huge amount even if i lift about 20 percent less on front squats i am still training to failure so front squats versus back squats. There's a little, this kind of what things show is, is that front squats are more loaded onto quads. Back squats bring in a little bit more glute and hamstring. It's not, a, it's not as much as everybody thinks it is though. I think it's this whole thing about people thinking that back squats are great for building a glute, for glutes, etc. They will help, they can help attribute building glutes, but they're not the silver bullet for building sort of hamstring and butt. Um, you will generally lift less on a front squat purely because of where the bar is loaded. Um, the comfort of a front squat is really, it's a difficult position to be setting a bar up in. Um, so you will always lift less, especially trying to get like wrists underneath the bar. Um, I pop up a I'll pop up a quick um, a, a wee thing that I did for the last commit to six group using a set of wrist straps rather than f fingertips under the bar. Just helps allow your how helps you allow to get a bit more comfortable. Um, I don't. It's not detrimental jumping between the two. Um, you if you're doing two leg sessions a week you know you're still getting the volume in and as long as your volume still shifting there's no reason why you can't switch between the two it's not a great problem um as for your knee it's maybe a stability issue um potentially take a wee video of it pop it up in the group and we can have a wee look at it um and we can see what's happening agreed i think the only problem really is that as you say it's much harder to lift heavier weights and if you're dropping by 20% and you're thinking right okay well if my muscle needs to be under loads to grow and technically yep. more volume is going to create a bigger stimulus for growth would it be better to do the majority of my squats back squats so that I'm lifting heavier and stimulating that muscle more probably yes like some front squats are great and I think I think personally your form tends to be a lot better with a front squat if you can do them properly because there's really no cheating like you can't you have to stay upright you yeah. can't like bend forward because the bar would just fall so you have to stay in a much more upright position so I think sometimes I like putting them in just to make sure people's form is good and I think it helps squatting form but in terms of like the loading on your on your legs and the muscles in your legs like 
you might be missing out on volume if you if you're switching between the two too much so that's just the only consideration really yeah perfect uh, okay from joanna um one of my knees clicks quite loudly with any exercise that has a bent knee it doesn't hurt any idea what causes it other than getting old and is it just okay to keep exercising through it you I go say, ahead i just need to get the door one second yeah of course um with something like that if there's no pain i wouldn't be too worried about it um I think that anything that sort of starts to promote pain, you need to have a look at. If it's clicking, it might, it could be something as simple as just a wee little bit of tendons pinging as you're moving. Um, could just be a little bit of cartilage that's kicking about that's not causing any causing any issues. Um, so yeah, don't stress too much about it unless it starts to promote pain or if there's any swelling in it i wouldn't really be too worried about your your knee clicking um it's i, I unfortunately now two knee operations down my knees click when i'm squatting etc there's no pain there's no swelling it's just something that happens unfortunately agreed perfect uh, second part of our question is the menopause i am now post-menopausal for two years as i went through an early menopause my whole shape has changed to a typical stereotype middle-aged woman shape with all the weight on my middle and chest when i lose weight is it the last place to lose it and when i gain sorry when i lose weight it is the last place to lose it and when i gain weight it's the first place to gain it I know you can't target fat loss in certain place, but is there any specific exercise diet that can shift things in this area quicker? Unfortunately not. And the exact, you know, what's happening to you or your body fat redistribution to more towards around your middle is completely normal around menopause. Um, and you're doing everything right already. Like, you're already lifting weights, you're already exercising, you're watching your diet, like there's, there's nothing more that you need to be doing. I would, if you haven't already, have a discussion with your doctor about hormone replacement therapy, um, which may impact where you're redistributing your store of body fat as well. But in terms of what you're doing, like hopefully this is reassuring that you are already doing all the right things, so don't stress about that. And yeah. there are some things that we just can't choose where we store body fat. Yeah, that's unfortunately the way it is, isn't it? Sort of. Um, okay, from Elizabeth, can you explain the difference between training for strength versus training for hypertrophy or hypertrophy or however you want to say it, muscle building? Simply, strength is generally lower range reps for higher weight with longer rest periods because you're trying to shift as much weight as you can. Hypertrophy or hypertrophy um, is generally higher volume on reps so that you can cause more cellular damage within the muscle for it to repair and to grow. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there isn't really much difference. So yeah. when it comes to hypertrophy, all the research seems to lead to the fact that volume is key. Now, whether you create that volume strength training, as Andy just described, like lower reps, or whether you do moderate reps or high reps doesn't really matter. However, what you will find is that it's easier to create more volume in the slightly higher rep range. So like typical hypertrophy reps are like eight to 15 kind of range, whereas strength would be like six and below kind of range. It's easier to create the volume with the higher reps, which is why most people, which is why like those are sort of deemed hypertrophy 
rep ranges. Yeah. Um, if you are training for strength, then you need to train in a lower rep range because it just needs to be specific. Like you need to get your muscles used to lifting weights, given that strength is the ability to lift like a weight, at, like your maximal strength would be your maximal one rep max lift or something. Yeah. You need to get used to lifting heavy weights. So there is, there's slight differences, but in terms of like you could train for strength, while optimizing hypertrophy, it's just a little bit easier to create the volume. They, on a there's, a big, range. there's a big crossover in both, you know. Oh, yeah, because only... they're like they are so aligned. This is what people yep. I think forget, and there's only kind of short periods of time, like especially when you're starting exercise where or starting resistance training, where you will improve your strength without improving your hypertrophy. Once yeah. you're quite an experienced lifter, the two go hand in hand. Like you cannot become stronger without building more muscle because you've already maximize, maximized, <laughs> maximized like the central nervous system response and the muscle recruitment response yeah. that you would be getting the strength increases from when you first start exercising. But once you've kind of got that, yeah. then anything above that is just simply building more muscle, which is why when we're in a muscle building phase, one of the key performance markers we look at is, is your strength increasing? Because yeah. we know that more muscle mass, will, you'll be able to lift heavier weight. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Katie, lots of question about knees. I too have dodgy knees and have quite limited mobility. I can't bend them that far, so struggle with deep squats. Is it possible to improve mobility in your joints or do I just accept that I am getting old? Um, with your mobility and your knees, there are certain things that you can do without actually... Um, that will improve mobility but don't have any effect or you don't do anything with the joint so like simple things like a squat you would maybe raise your heels so put a weights plate or something under your heel to elevate it slightly so that you can that your ankle allows the mobility to of your knees to move forward um i'll put up a post later on with that that i did with the, the sort of mobility issues because a lot of people think a lot i think a lot of people think that their knees are the issue when in actual fact it's the ankle that's the issue the ankle doesn't allow the knee to move in the in the plane of movement that it needs to go so um katie if you're um if you want pop again similarly pop up a video let me have a look at a side a side on squat and let me uh, let's see if it is a knee issue or if it's an ankle issue and then there'll be a few things that we can do to alleviate that Perfect. Let's Excellent. make this the last one and then we'll come back tomorrow and finish the... Perfect. Okay, so so my questions would be, number one, supplements and vitamins, what's good and what's hype? This is this... good because we were just chatting about this yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So we had, what was our, our list was protein, yeah. whey protein, fish oil, vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Inositol. Yeah. Um, zinc and magnesium. Yeah. ZMA. Branch chains. No. No, no. Was it was it branch? Was it? No, it wasn't no. branch chains. I'm, no, I'm think I'm thinking something else. Um, ZMA's. Er, there was something else. I think. I don't know if that was it. I think I might have said a decent multivitamin. Decent multivitamin. I think yeah. was the other one. Give me a sec. I'll just quickly scoot back. Um, some form of caffeine. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, electrolytes. Basically, these are these are the only real 
um, supplements with decent evidence. I mean, there there might be a claim for BCAAs if you were vegan. Like, if I went yep. vegan, I'd probably supplement with essential amino acids, but creatine was the other one that's got a lot of research behind it that's very it's good for helping strength endurance and also it's quite good for your um your cognitive function that's the word christ almighty my cognitive function wasn't working there um yeah so a lot the biggest issue that you'll find with a lot of supplements is that it's genuinely good market marketing you know if you a lot of these companies have got huge budgets to market stuff that actually has got no scientific evidence to back it up um if you're looking to try and find out a supplement or a, an ingredient of a supplement that you want to have a look at we both use examine.com which is a free um free research it's very it's unbiased there's no they have no links to anybody and it's just a pretty much you type in what you're looking for it'll tell you the benefits or lack of um dosages everything that you need to look at on that one um the second part of this question is spirulina is it worth it given it tastes like pond water what is spirulina spirulina is one of these green powder kind of um let me just I'm quickly... guessing it's, it'll be some form of um algae i would have thought let's have a look Spirulina oh, is a biomass of cyanobacteria that can be consumed by humans and animals. Um, I imagine it's full of antioxidants or something. Yeah, here we go. Spirulina boasts a 60% protein content. That's not bad. It's a richer source of protein than most vegetables and also has good source of beta-carotene various minerals, gamma linoleic acid, and essential fatty acid. Yeah, I mean, it looks okay. Loads but it does taste have antioxidants like in, It says anti-inflammatory. I mean, you'd get very similar benefits, I think, from just eating enough fruit and veg. Yeah, Which exactly. would probably be more enjoyable. Yeah, and also, it's, spirulina is one of these things that because it's now a superfood or a health food you now get charged through the nose for it so that's one of the things i think a lot of people kind of look at don't look at that as well as is the whole um the expense of supplements like you know just because something's got a, a price tag on it doesn't mean it's actually worthwhile you know there are lots and lots of really good brands out there that are actually really relatively well priced for what you're looking for um you know, home bargains, I'm the biggest champion of home bargains in the world because they have, like, everything and it's cheap as chips. Like, you can go in, like, I, I got um, my fiance Laura, a tub of vegan protein because she doesn't, she can't, you go for lactose. So I got her vegan protein and it was, like, for 20 servings, £7.99. And yeah. it's applied nutrition, so it's, like, good, it's a decent quality brand that's also sports tested as well so, like, athletes can take it. Seven ninety nine, like you know, what's yeah? Great. It doesn't have to be expensive, um, and just and certainly not because it is. Is it any better? Like I think I had a couple of questions about creatine this week, and like where should I get my creatine? Honestly, creatine monohydrate should be exactly the same wherever you get it. Like it, that, there shouldn't be anything else in it. You don't want any additives or anything. So 
go to the basic places. That's why I quite like places like bulk powders or my protein for just you don't want any of the other crap that's in there. Like I want the basic whey protein, nothing else in, bam. Like I want this supplement with nothing else in, bam. Otherwise, like you get these things with all all these other additives in and sometimes you're taking your creatine that also has something else in and your protein that also has something else in and you're double dosing and yep. then you're taking another supplement which also has a bit of this in and and actually you're taking too much of certain things so yeah. that's something to be aware of as well like if you are taking various different supplements for different things just make sure that there aren't like duplicates of different things in each of your supplements yeah definitely Excellent. but generally the reason that we don't really recommend many supplements is because you don't need them yeah there are hey, exactly that's I think why they're just, called supplements to supplement. supplement the definition in addition to there we go right guys uh, we didn't get through all the questions and we also have questions from committed check-ins so we will be back tomorrow to get through them but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk to you then perfect